Book Seven: The Church of the Social Revolution, Part Three, of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Desire of Nations. So the churches, like all the rest of the world, are caught in the great revolutionary current and swept on towards a goal which they do not foresee, and from which they would shrink in dismay. The church of the future, the church redeemed by the spirit of brotherhood, the church which we socialists will join. They call us materialists, and say that we think about nothing but the belly, and that is true, in a way, because we are the representatives of a starving class, which thinks about its belly precisely as does any individual who is ravening with hunger. But give us what that errant materialist James, the brother of Jesus, calls those things which are needful to the body, and then we will use our minds, and even discover that we have souls, whereas at present we are led to despise the very word spiritual which has become the stock-in-trade of parasites and poseurs. We have children whom we love and whose future is precious to us. We would be glad to have them trained in ways of decency and self-control, of dignity and grace. It would make us happy if there were in the world institutions conducted by men and women of consecrated life who would specialize in teaching a true morality to the young. But it must be a morality of freedom, not of slavery. A morality founded upon reason, not upon superstition. The men who teach it must be men who know what truth is, and the passionate loyalty which the search for truth inspires. They cannot be the pitiful shufflers and compromisers we see in the churches today, the Jowets who say they used to believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Rather than trust our children to such shameless cynics, we will make shift to train them ourselves, we amateurs, not knowing much about children, and absorbed in the desperate struggle against organized wrong. It is a statement which many revolutionists would resent, yet it is a fact nevertheless, that we need a new religion, need it just as badly as any of the rest of our pitifully groping race. That we need it is proven by the rivalries and quarrels in our midst, the schisms which waste the greater part of our activities, and which are often the result of personal jealousies and petty vanities. To lift men above such weakness, to make them really brothers in a great cause, that is the work of personal religion in the true and vital sense of the words. We pioneers and propagandists may not live to see the birth of the new Church of Humanity, but our children will see it, and the dream of it is in our hearts. Our poets have sung of it with fervor and conviction. Read these lines from The Desire of Nations by Edwin Markham, in which he tells of the new Redeemer who is at hand.
and when he comes into the world gone wrong, he will rebuild her beauty with a song. To every heart he will its own dream be. One moon has many phantoms in the sea. Out of the north the norns will cry to men, Baldur the beautiful has come again. The flutes of Greece will whisper from the dead, Apollo has unveiled his sun-bright head. The stones of Thebes and Memphis will find voice. Osiris comes, O tribes of time, rejoice. And social architects who build the state, serving the dream at citadel and gate, will hail him coming through the labor hum, and glad quick cries will go from man to man. Lo, he has come, our Christ the artisan, the king who loved the lilies, he has come. THE KNOWABLE The new religion will base itself upon the facts of life, as demonstrated by experience and reason, for to the modern thinker the basis of all interest is truth and the wonders of the microscope and the telescope, of the new psychology and the new sociology, are more wonderful than all the magic recorded in ancient mythologies. And even if this were not so, the business of the thinker is to follow the facts. The history of all philosophy might be summed up in this simile. The infant opens his eyes and sees the moon, and stretches out his hands and cries for it, but those in charge do not give it to him, and so after a while the infant tires of crying, and turns to his mother's breast and takes a drink of milk. Man demands to know the origin of life. It is intolerable for him to be here and not know how or whence or why. He demands the knowledge immediately and finally, and invents innumerable systems and creeds. He makes himself believe them, with fire and torture makes other men believe them, until finally, in the confusion of a million theories, it occurs to him to investigate his instruments, and he makes the discovery that his tools are inadequate, and all their products worthless. His mind is finite, while the thing he seeks is infinite. His knowledge is relative, while the first cause is absolute. This realization we owe to Immanuel Kant, the father of modern philosophy. In his famous antinomies, he proved four propositions. First, that the universe is limitless in time and space. Second, that matter is composed of simple indivisible elements. Third, that free will is impossible. And fourth, that there must be an absolute or first cause. And having proven these things, he turned round and proved their opposites, with arguments exactly as unanswerable. Anyone who follows these demonstrations and understands them takes all his metaphysical learning and lays it on the shelf with his astrology and magic. It is a fact 
which every one who wishes to think must get clear, that when you are dealing with absolutes and ultimates, you can prove whatever you want to prove. Metaphysics is like the fourth dimension. You fly into it and come back upside down, hindside foremost, inside out. And when you get tired of this condition, you take another flight and come back the way you were before. So metaphysical thinking serves the purpose of Catholic cheats like Cardinal Newman and Professor Chatterton Hill. It serves hysterical women like Mother Eddy. It serves the new thoughters who wish to fill their bellies with wind. It serves the charlatans and mystagogues who wish to befuddle the wits of the populace. Real thinkers avoid it as they would a bottomless swamp. They avoid not merely the idealism of Platonists and Hegelians, but the monism of Heckel and the materialism of Buchner and Jacques Loeb. The simple fact is that it is as impossible to prove the priority of origin and the ultimate nature of matter as it is of mind, so that the scientist who lays down a materialist dogma is exactly as credulous as a Christian. How then are we to proceed? Shall we erect the mystery into an unknowable, like Spencer? and call ourselves agnostics with a capital letter like Huxley? Shall we follow Frederick Harrison, making an inadequate divinity out of our impotence? I have read the books of the positivists, and attended their imitation church in London, but I did not get any satisfaction from them. In the midst of their dogmatic pronouncements, I found myself remembering how the egg falls apart and reveals a chicken, how the worm suddenly discovers itself a butterfly. The spirit of man is a breaker of barriers, and it seems a futile occupation to set limits upon the future. Our business is not to say what men will know ten thousand years from now, but to content ourselves with the simple statement of what men know now. What we know is a procession of phenomena called an environment, our life being an act of adjustment to its changes, and our faith being the conviction that this adjustment is possible and worthwhile. In the beginning the guide is instinct, and the act of trust is automatic. But with the dawn of reason the thinker has to justify his faith, to convince himself that life is sincere, that there is worthwhileness in being, or in seeking to be, that there is order in creation, laws which can be discovered, processes which can be applied. Just as the babe trusts life when it gropes for its mother's breast, so the most skeptical of scientists trusts it when he declares that water is made of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, and sets it down for a certainty that this will always be so, that he is not being played with by some sportive demon who will today cause H2O to behave like water, and tomorrow like benzene. Nature's Insurgent Sun 
Life has laws, which it is possible to ascertain, and with each bit of knowledge acquired, the environment is changed, the life becomes a new thing. Consider, for example, what a different place the world became to the man who discovered that the force which laid the forest in ashes could be tamed and made to warm a cave and make wild grains nutritious. In other words, man can create life. He can make the world and himself into that which his reason decides it ought to be. The means by which he does this is the most magical of all the tools he has invented since his arboreal ancestor made the first club, the tool of experimental science. And when one considers that this weapon has been understood and deliberately employed for but two or three centuries, he realizes that we are indeed only at the beginning of human evolution. To take command of life, to replace instincts by reasoned and deliberate acts, to make the world a conscious and ordered product, that is the task of man. Sir Ray Lancaster has set this forth with beautiful precision in his book The Kingdom of Man. We are, at this time, in an uncomfortable and dangerous transition stage, as a child playing with explosives. This child has found out how to alter his environment in many startling ways, but he does not yet know why he wishes to alter it, nor to what purpose. He finds that certain things are uncomfortable, and these he proceeds immediately to change. Discovering that grain fermented dispels boredom, he creates a race of drunkards. Discovering that foods can be produced in profusion and prepared in alluring combinations, he makes himself so many diseases that it takes an encyclopedia to tell about them. Discovering that captives taken in war can be made to work, he makes a procession of empires which are eaten through with luxury and corruption and fall into ruins again. This is nature's way. She produces without limit, groping blindly, experimenting ceaselessly, eliminating ruthlessly. It takes a million eggs to produce one salmon. It has taken a million million men to produce one idea, algebra, or the bow and arrow, or democracy. Nature's present impulse appears as a rebellion against her own methods. Man, her creature, will emancipate himself from her law, will save himself from her blindness and her ruthlessness. He is nature's insurgent son, but, being the child of his mother, goes at the task in her old blundering way. Some men are scheduled to elimination because of defective eyesight. They are furnished with glasses, and the breeding of defective eyes begins. The sickly or imbecile child would perish at once in the course of nature. It is saved in the name of charity, and a new line of degenerates is started. What shall we do? 
return to the method of the Spartans, exposing our sickly infants? We do not have to do anything so wasteful, because we can replace the killing of the unfit by a scientific breeding which will prevent the unfit from getting a chance at life. We can replace instinct by self-discipline. We can substitute for the regime of nature red in tooth and claw with raven, the regime of man the creator, knowing what he wishes to be and how to set about to be it. Whether this can happen, whether the thing which we call civilization is to be the great triumph of the ages, or whether the human race is to go back into the melting pot, is a question being determined by an infinitude of contests between enlightenment and ignorance, precisely such a contest as occurs now, when you, the reader, encounter a man who has thought his way out to the light, and comes to urge you to perform the act of self-emancipation, to take up the marvelous new tools of science, and to make yourself, by means of exact knowledge, the creator of your own life, and in part of the life of the race. End of Book 7, Part 3